You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. I invite you to take out your bulletin um, to turn to the sermon section. Um, because this morning, Paul's, Paul's words to us are, are strange. Strange in that he joins together two very different things very quickly. He's told us some things that are, that are clear, but challenging, challenging but, but clear. Things about bearing with one another, things about forgiving one another and welcoming one another. Things about belonging to the Lord, whether we live or we die. Things about how we eat or don't eat and treat one another in light of it. And then, very quickly, right at the end, he jumps all the way to the judgment seat of Christ, to the return of Christ. He begins by talking about eating, not about the Lord's Supper, but just about vegetables, or not eating vegetables, or eating anything without discrimination. And this matter is kind of small. It's not exactly clear what precisely the problem was. It might have been Christians concerned about whether they should keep the Jewish food laws, or the Old Testament food laws. Maybe it was Christians who were concerned about whether they could eat meat sacrificed to idols. However it was, it was a question of eating and daily dishes and gets connected very swiftly to the judgment seat of Christ, a large and eternal vision. Paul asks us to remember that we will give account to him, to Jesus, for our lives. His vision is expansive. It's, it's, it's gone from this tiny little issue to the, the issue. The end issue for all of us. So we ask, well, what exactly does eating and the way we treat each other with eating have to do with the judgment seat of Christ? How are these two joined together? And how do we understand one in light of the other? Now, to give us a, a sense of this, I, we've got some artwork that we've been, we've been working through Romans along with various pieces of art that have helped us grasp certain concepts. And today, we're going to go to Italy, to a church called the Arena Chapel, right outside where uh, a Roman arena used to be, and which is painted almost entirely by Giotto di Bondoni. He painted all the walls in the church, and when you walk into the church, you will see great frescoes of Christ and his life, of Mary, of God. And you're surrounded by the story of God. But what we're going to talk about tonight is what happens when you turn, or to, tonight, it's morning, it looks like night. <laughs> Well, who cares anymore? <laughs> um, what happens when you turn to leave this chapel? Because when you turn to leave this chapel, you are greeted with an entire back wall covered with one giant fresco. And it is the picture that is in your bulletin. It is the picture of the return of Christ. There is Christ seated at the center, the largest of all the figures. He has a halo. He is he's entering into the world. He is returning in judgment, dividing the sheep and the goats. And as you walk out of this chapel, the artist is there reminding you of what's to come. You've been surrounded by the work of God, blessed and, and promised by the work of God, and now you leave with the glorious return of Christ on your mind and in your eyes. Whatever your plans for the day, Jesus wants you to see them through the eyes of the return of Jesus. Your daily life, he is saying, is woven into this kingdom that is coming. And whether it be eating or sleeping or working and praying, it's all ruled by God. For as Paul writes, none of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. 
For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Every single moment has been captured by God's work in Jesus and made holy. In baptism, God claimed our whole being, our life, our death, our eating, our sleeping, joining it to Christ, the risen and ascended Lord who will come again. And in the meantime, we already belong to him. Our daily life is infused with meaning by his eternal kingdom. But this is a truth that we often forget because we don't see it. And in a corner of this painting is a terrifying reminder. It's, it's difficult to see, but if you looked closely, if you were there, you would see in the corner a terrifying vision of hell. Demons torturing humans, and you can see death seated and devouring everyone he can get his hands on. But if you were there, and you can't see it in your bulletin, it's too small, but if you're there, you could see something even more scary. A lone man journeying with a bag on his back, not terrified, just walking toward death. Taking his time, not aware of what's going on, not aware of where he's going, just walking. And the artist gives us a chilling reminder that there's a danger that we always forget that we live in God's kingdom and end up on a road that leads to a different end, a road that leads to destruction. This is the road Jesus was talking about in our parable, which is another scary parable. It's hidden behind the story of two kingdoms. We have a king, a kingdom where, well, the kingdom of God, where, where debts are forgiven, and a kingdom of this world where debts must be paid. And we have a servant in Jesus' parable brought before his master in fear and trembling because he lives in the kingdom where debts must be paid, and he owns and he owes a debt that he simply cannot pay. The debt probably totals up to around you know, 100,000 years of daily labor. But he insists that he can. When he's brought before this master and asked to pay his debt and his family is threatened, he insists, Lord, have, have mercy on me. Let, me. let me pay. I can pay my debt. The master lives in a different kingdom. The master lives in a kingdom where debts can be forgiven. And so out of mercy on his part, he forgives the man this astronomical debt. And this forgiveness is not just a transaction. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to this servant to live in the kingdom where sins can be forgiven, where, where debts can be paid, where debts can be forgiven. The master is inviting the servant to live in his kingdom and to live without this logic of debt that must be paid. But of course, we know what happens. The servant then goes out and he meets a fellow servant who owes him six months labor, and he refuses to forgive it. He refuses to forgive it. He refuses to live in the kingdom where debts can be forgiven. And so, the king grants him his wish. Stay in that kingdom. Stay in that kingdom till you can pay your debt. And he throws him in jail. With this parable, this harrowing parable, Jesus is inviting his disciples to live in God's kingdom, a kingdom where debts are forgiven and sins are paid for, not by a person's hard work, not by a person's effort, not by a person's conformity to religious laws or religious rules, but by the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus Christ, God has opened a door to a kingdom where sins are forgiven, where eternal debts are forgiven. 
But like the foolish servant, we, we are always struggling to live in a kingdom. Well, we like to live in the kingdom where people have to pay their own debts. And that's the problem Paul has in mind. That's what's behind this conflict in the Roman community. These Roman people, Jews and Gentiles alike, they are part of Christ's eternal kingdom. God has claimed them through baptism and given them his spirit, but it is not affecting how they live with one another. Because right now they're fighting over food. Those who are strong in faith and feel that they can eat whatever are despising and looking down on those who feel that they need to be careful and only eat vegetables. And those who are weak in faith are passing judgment on those lawless, strong people. God's church is being divided and broken apart, filled with despising and judgment rather than forgiveness, forbearance, understanding, and love. They no longer see it. They're no longer living according to the logic into which they were baptized. They are no longer welcoming one another as Christ welcomed them. And it's great that the church has kind of figured this one out, right? We don't do this anymore. Well, I mean, it actually might be better if the church today only was arguing about kosher laws. Today, we know how churches are. Churches fight about different things. Maybe it's music, too old, too new. Maybe it's liturgy, standing, kneeling. It's instruments. It's hymnals or slides. It's the carpet color. It's whether grandma's recipe made it into the cookbook. We know these stories. We know people who've been affected by these stories. We know people who've been damaged by their life in the church. Sometimes people leave broken by the harsh words of others. Sometimes people leave carrying judgment on all who didn't see things their way. We can and do still fight about tiny, inconsequential things, passing judgment on the servants of another. And this damage that is done divides Christ's body. And it leads people down a road that leads them away from Jesus and into a different kingdom. And this is what is weighing on Paul's heart. This is the concern. It obviously still confronts us today. How do we live with each other? Do we bite and devour one another over things that don't matter to Jesus? Or do we take our own values, our own ideas, our own preferences, and push them on the church and then divide the church with them? Or do we live in a kingdom where none of us belongs to himself or herself? where all of us are servants of another, another who gives us our values, who gives us our reconciliation, and who tells us what matters to him. The good news about all this, as we, sinners that we are, forgiven sinners that we are, know how we have each contributed to this, None of that negates what Christ did. For Paul writes, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. For the humility in which Jesus came into this world and welcomed tax collectors and prostitutes to himself was also the humility in which he dined with Pharisees. And he dined with the religious elite, offering each of them this kingdom, confronting them with this kingdom where sins are forgiven, he paid the debts of all, sinner and saint alike. His priceless life covered your sins before you came to Christ, your sins while you are in Christ. And all these sins were laid on Jesus and given to him. And we each day come back to this and say, though I sinned, though I broke your church, 
Though I hurt your body, Jesus, I know you forgive me because you promised to. Christ died and lives again for people as dead and alive as us. We who've been baptized into his death and resurrection, we who now live by the power of his spirit and faltering faith, we live in an eternal kingdom where our sins are forgiven. And we daily come back to this definitive truth of who we are. We are the Lord's. Our Old Testament reading, we talked about it in the kids' sermon, it gives us another example of these two kingdoms. Joseph lives in the kingdom where sins are forgiven, but his brothers do not. His brothers know they betrayed him into slavery, yet they know, well, they can't imagine that he would ever actually really forgive them. So, they invent a lie, they put it on their, father's, on their dead father's mouth, and say, Dad told you to forgive us. And Joseph weeps, because they've never believed his forgiveness. And Joseph weeps because he knows the truth. But he's wise, and he is strong. And even though he rules over a kingdom far more powerful than Pharaoh's, that kingdom is a kingdom where debts are forgiven. And he forgives them, and comforts them, and consoles them, and calls them to believe him. Do not fear, he says. I will provide for you and your little ones. This kingdom Jesus talks about in the parable this kingdom in which Joseph and his brothers live, Paul now proclaims to us in Christ. He proclaims to the people in Rome, it's the kingdom that is before us each and every day. When we live by the power of Jesus' forgiveness, when we live by the power of the welcome that he has given us, and we welcome those who are different from us and don't agree with us. So what does that look like exactly? Well, it's going to have all sorts of interesting applications, no matter where you may be. But the artist... Giotto, he knew how to sum it all up. Because if you look at that painting, you'll see one thing. Jesus is, of course, central to the vision. His returning, the returning Lord hangs there in the air, surrounded by light, about to break into the world. But until this day comes, you have to go out that door. And what's the last thing you see before you go out that door? A cross. He painted a cross right above the door. Because he knew that everyone who leaves this chapel does so carrying a cross, the cross of their neighbor's life, the cross of forgiveness for those who've hurt them. Because they all leave walking out that door as those who belong to Christ, who conquered by dying, who met cursing with blessing, and who overcame evil with good through his cross. And so whether it be Christians in Rome leaving their house churches, whether it be the family leaving, uh, an Italian family leaving this chapel, or whether it be us leaving the Holiday Inn Express, we go carrying the grace of the cross. God's grace alive and active in us, working to heal our neighbor, to bear his or her wounds, and to live as people whose debts are forgiven. So we carry that cross. We conquer by dying. We meet cursing with blessing. We overcome evil with good through his cross. This is the end of our journey through Romans. Over the past few months, we've, we've looked at God's greater story. 
how God the Father sent his Son to live and to die, to rise again to forgive us all our sins and to conquer death, our enemy, how he, he baptized us into his kingdom, uniting us with his death and resurrection, how he gave us his spirit to give us faith and love, and how he has brought us into an eternal kingdom that will finally, in the end, do what God has always intended to do. But now, as we've seen in chapter 12, we live no longer for ourselves. We live as living sacrifices who belong to Jesus. That's God's greater plan for you. That's where you fit in God's greater story. He gathers you to hear his word and his proclamation here. He offers you Christ's body and blood here. And he sends you forth to be previews of the new creation to all around him. To be portraits of his loving rule. To say when you are wronged. To say when you are wrong. Whether I live or whether I die, I am the Lord's. For Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be all glory and honor, now and forever. Amen. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.